Howdy. If you've just clicked on this podcast edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide, you probably have more than a passing interest in the new laws impacting human trafficking prosecutions. Although several of the new laws we're about to discuss have potential impacts on many other kinds of prosecutions as well. Hopefully, this edition of IPG can get you up to speed on these new developments while providing one hour of approved MCLE general credit. Our guest for this edition of IPG is Paula Astanislau, who is the Deputy District Attorney in charge of the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office Human Trafficking Unit. Paula, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here, Jeff. Paula, there were approximately 10 new laws that went into effect this year relating to human trafficking, some with greater impacts than others. One of those laws with the greatest impact eliminated any criminal prosecutions of juveniles who engage in acts of prostitution. That law, though, was covered in a previous podcast of IPG and will not be discussed in this edition of IPG. However, we will be covering all the remaining laws, including a new law that creates a brand new affirmative defense. Paula, could you tell us how this new affirmative defense works? Yes, absolutely. So the new affirmative defense is laid out in Penal Code Section 236.23 and was created for defendants charged with crimes other than serious or violent felonies or human trafficking. The affirmative defense requires the defendant to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that she was coerced to commit the offense as a direct result of being a human trafficking victim at the time of the offense and had a reasonable fear of harm. The defense may be raised at any time, and if the defense is successful, the, defen the defendant is entitled to have her record sealed. Paul, how is this defense different from the defense of duress, which exempts persons charged with crimes other than those punishable by death from liability if they commit the offense under threats or menaces sufficient to show that they had reasonable cause to and did believe their lives would be endangered if they refused? Well. The intent behind creating this new defense was, in the opinion of the California legislature, the inadequacy of the duress defense as it applies to human trafficking victims. They felt that a trafficking victim may not be able to show that her life was in such immediate danger that it would satisfy the duress defense. At the same time, should that person be held culpable for acts committed that were not of her own volition, for which she had little to no say? So the new defense was created to cover acting out of a fear that does not rise to the level of imminent fear to life that is required to excuse a criminal act under the defense of duress. That is the key difference. So anyone charged with a crime other than someone charged with a serious or violent crime or the crime of human trafficking can raise a defense. Is there any ambiguity in this statute about what crimes will qualify as serious or violent crimes? No, there's really not. Section 236.23 expressly disqualifies defendants charged with a violation of Penal Code Section 236.1, serious felonies as defined in Penal Code Section 1192.7c, or violent felonies as defined in Penal Code Section 667.5c. It is unambiguous in this regard. What offenses are defined in Penal Code Section 236.1? A person violates 236.1 if he deprived or violated a person's personal liberty with the intent to obtain forced labor or services, 
or to affect or maintain a violation of pimping, pandering, distribution of pornography, or several other related offenses. These are the elements that apply if your victim is an adult or if your case involves labor trafficking, whether of an adult or a minor. Now, if you have a sex trafficking case and your victim is a minor, the elements are a bit different. Any person who causes, induces, or persuades, or attempts to cause, induce, or persuade a person who is a minor at the time of the commission of the offense to engage in a commercial sex act with the intent to affect or maintain a violation of pimping, pandering, distribution of pornography, and several other related offenses is guilty of sex trafficking of a minor. As you can see, it does not require deprivation of liberty. So let's say someone is charged not with a violation of Penal Code Section 236.1, but simply with pimping or simply with pandering. Could that person potentially use the defense created uh, by this new statute? Yes. Now, 236.23 says it is a defense to a charge of a crime that the person was coerced to commit the offense as a direct result of being a human trafficking victim at the time of the offense and had a reasonable fear of harm. Is there a definition given to the term coerced? So the term coerced is not defined in section 236.23. The term coercion, however, is defined in 236.1. That definition of coercion is applicable throughout the chapter governing human trafficking offenses, which covers penal code sections 236 through 237. Of course, that includes the affirmative defense in section 236.23. Now looking to this definition, Coercion is defined as a scheme, plan, or pattern intended to cause a person to believe that failure to perform an act would result in serious harm to or physical restraint against any person. It could also include the abuse or threatened abuse of the legal process, debt bondage, or even providing and facilitating the possession of a controlled substance to a person with the intent to impair the person's judgment. Paula, I can see how trying to come up with a definition of coerce for the new defense is going to be difficult. For example, under Section 236.1's definition, someone might be able to argue that they were coerced into committing a crime by being given a controlled substance that impaired their judgment. But that's not our typical understanding of what being coerced means. Moreover, we usually think of somebody being coerced as someone who has done something against their will out of a fear of harm. But showing that defendant acted out of a reasonable fear of harm seems to be a separate element of this new defense, independent of the coercion itself. Does the, does the statute define the term harm? Um, it does not, Jeff. So serious harm is defined in 236.1, which describes the crime of human trafficking. Specifically, 236.1, sub H, sub 8, defines serious harm as any harm, whether physical or non-physical, including psychological, financial, or reputational harm that is sufficiently serious under all the surrounding circumstances to compel a reasonable person of the same background and in the same circumstances to perform or to continue performing labor, services, or commercial sex acts in order to avoid incurring that harm. The inclusion of a reasonable fear of harm as a requirement of the affirmative defense may have been intended to incorporate the definition of serious harm, but we can't say for certain because if the legislature meant serious harm, why didn't they include the word serious to qualify the word harm in section 236.23? 
is the harm described in 236.1 somehow a different lesser form of harm referenced in section 236.23? As you can see, the ill-considered language of the new statute presents issues. Frankly, it is difficult to conceive of some lesser form of harm that is defined in 236.1 H8 because its definition of serious harm is already so broad and expansive. But if we can be certain about one thing, Jeff, it's that the legislature clearly intended that the fear of a human trafficking victim need not rise to the level of the fear required under a duress defense. As repeatedly stated in the analyses of AB 1761, and I quote, the sponsors of this bill believe the duress defense is inadequate for trafficking victims because a victim may not be able to show his or her life was in immediate danger. Paula, as you've mentioned, there is not only a requirement that there be some sort of coercion and a fear of harm, but the defense also requires that the defendant show they committed a crime as a direct result of being a human trafficking victim. What, what does that mean? So that's a great question, Jeff. Uh, neither Penal Code Section 236.23 nor Section 236.1 defines human trafficking victim or what it means to have committed a crime as a direct result of being a human trafficking victim. But we can look to Evidence Code Section 1161, an already existing statute for guidance. And this is what 1161 says. Evidence that a victim of human trafficking as defined in Section 236.1 of the Penal Code has engaged in any commercial sex act as a result of being a human trafficking victim is inadmissible to prove the victim's criminal liability for the commercial sex act. In a 2014 case involving a juvenile, the Court of Appeal declared the plain meaning of Evidence Code Section 1161, Subdivision A, shows that it applies only when there is a specific causal connection between the victim's status as a victim of human trafficking and the particular commercial sex act at issue. Thus, even though a minor charged with soliciting prostitution testified she had been trafficked in the past by 10 different pimps, the appellate court found no causal connection between her status as a trafficking victim and the particular sex act at issue. The appellate court based its finding on the fact that the minor was not working for a pimp at the time of the solicitation. She said she approached the undercover officer because she could get money really quick. She said no one forced her to solicit and she testified that she would get to keep the money she made because she was not working for a pimp at the time. Uh, in another recent case, the appellate court rejected the minor's argument that, as a matter of law, she was entitled to exclude evidence of her commercial sex act pursuant to Section 1161, where the evidence suggested an older adult female companion was leading her on the streets in an area known for prostitution activity, while demonstrating methods for luring potential customers. And police officers arrested the older companion for pimping the minor. The court observed that while this evidence might have been sufficient to support a finding that she was a victim of human trafficking, the conduct was also consistent with numerous other possibilities, such as that she and her companion were merely friends, both of whom voluntarily and on their own initiatives were soliciting prostitution. So Paula, my bet is, is that we're not going to be seeing any kind of instruction coming from Calgic or Calcrim before a prosecutor has to deal with this new defense. So we're going to have to come up with one on our own. Any thoughts on what that instruction should look like? Oh, so we've taken a crack at it by drafting a proposed instruction that reflects the purpose behind the creation of the new affirmative defense enacted by Section 236.23, which is to excuse human trafficking victims from the culpability for certain criminal acts. Because when the acts were committed, 
those victims were not acting of their own volition. We look to the legislative history of the new statute and language from 236.1 to derive this purpose and to ensure our proposed instruction reflected the legislature's intent accurately. Well, that instruction's included in the accompanying IPG memo. Uh, Paula, let me ask just a couple of quick questions about the, the proposed instruction. We had to come up with a definition of harm because the new defense requires that the defendant show a reasonable fear of harm. Where do we pull the definition of harm from? We've taken the definition of harm for purpose of the purposes of the instruction from the definition of serious harm provided in Penal Code Section 236.1 H8, uh, but, but modified it to reflect the defendant is the person who is subject to rather than inflicting the threat of harm. Moreover, because the defendant raising the defense created by section 236.23 may only have to show a reasonable fear of harm, not of serious harm, the proposed instruction simply requires that the harm feared be sufficient to compel a reasonable person to commit the crime, rather than that the harm be sufficiently serious to compel a reasonable person to commit the crime, as is required to convict, convict a person of human trafficking under section 236.1. The definition of serious harm and our proposed instruction indicate that the harm feared need not be limited to physical harm, but includes non-physical harm, such as psychological, financial, or reputational harm that is sufficient under all the surrounding circumstances to compel a reasonable person of the same background and in the same circumstances to perform the charged offense in order to avoid incurring that harm. But do you think the harm could also include potential harm to others? You know, that's unclear. Um, if the defendant is claiming she acted out of a fear of harm to others, the defendant may be entitled to have the definition of harm modified to reflect that the harm includes a threat of harm to other persons. Yeah, I guess we're not gonna know about the answer to that one until we actually have to confront the situation. In any event, one of the ways a person can be deemed a victim of human trafficking is to be a minor who was caused, induced, or persuaded by the defendant to engage in a commercial sex act. Now, a commercial sex act is defined in section 236.1 as meaning sexual conduct on account of which anything of value is given or received by a person. Can a minor who wishes to raise this new affirmative defense show she was a human trafficking victim if the conduct she engaged in never resulted in the exchange of money? For example, if a minor was busted a couple of times by undercover officers before any money was exchanged. In that unique circumstance, expect the defendant to argue she is a human trafficking victim even though she never technically engaged in a commercial sex act, so long as she engaged in an act prohibited by Penal Code Section 647B. This argument will be based on a recent case of NRAE NC. In, in that case, the court held that for purposes of Evidence Code Section 1161A, which precludes evidence that a victim of human trafficking, uh, as defined in 236.1, has engaged in any commercial sex act as a result of being a human trafficking victim, from being admitted to prove the victim's criminal liability for the commercial sex act. Uh, the term commercial sex act, sex act must be read more expansively so as to include uncompensated sexual conduct punishable under Penal Code Section 647, Subdivision B. Uh, B. Whether that argument will fly is dubious though. Why? Well, because unlike when it comes to Evidence Code Section 1161, the definition provided in 236.1 must be used to define the term commercial sex act 
for purposes of Section 236.23, the new affirmative defense. This is because Section 236.23 is included in the same chapter as Penal Code Section 236.1, and Subdivision H of Section 236.1 says, for purposes of this chapter, the following definitions apply, and it includes Commercial Sex Act, which means sexual conduct on account of which anything of value is given or received by a person. Basically, Jeff, the penal code expressly requires this definition to be used over any other when asserting the affirmative defense. All right. Let's move on to some of the other questions an inquisitive prosecutor might have about the new defense. When can the affirmative defense created by Section 236.23 be raised? You know, Jeff, unlike most every other defense you can think of, the human trafficking affirmative defense may be asserted at any time before the entry of a plea of guilty or nolo contendere, or admission to the truth of the charges and before the conclusion of any trial for the offense. This language likely means that a defendant would be entitled to some sort of evidentiary hearing before the actual trial, akin to the evidentiary hearing that occurs when a defendant is claiming the charged crime is outside the statute of limitations. Like the statute of limitations defense, the defendant will probably be able to raise the defense twice, one in a pretrial attempt and again at trial if the pretrial attempt to gain a dismissal of the charge fails. This is because 236.23 subdivision D says the affirmative defense may be asserted at any time before the entry of a plea of guilty or nola contendere or admission to the truth of the charges and before the conclusion of any trial for the offense. So can this pretrial evidentiary hearing occur even before a PX? Section 236.23 seems to comp contemplate that. Uh, in felony case cases, the evidentiary hearing would occur in conjunction with the preliminary hearing. However, the specific language used suggests that while the defense would be entitled to demand the hearing be held no later than at a preliminary examination, a court wouldn't necessarily be prevented from holding such a hearing before the preliminary examination. Okay, I suppose there's a, a negligible silver lining to this two bites at the apple defense. If an evidentiary hearing is held, but the judge rules against the defendant, you know, there's nothing in section 236.23 which would bar later use at trial of defendant's testimony at the earlier evidentiary hearing. Now, let me ask about a different aspect of the defense. May a defendant present hearsay evidence in support of the affirmative defense created by Section 236.23? Well, let's look at Subdivision C of Section 236.23, which provides the following. Certified records of a federal, state, tribal, or local court or governmental agency documenting the person's status as a victim of human trafficking at the time of the offense, including identification of a victim of human trafficking by a peace officer pursuant to Section 236.2 and certified records of approval notices or enforcement certifications generated from federal immigration proceedings may be presented to establish an affirmative defense pursuant to the section. If there have been formal findings in court that a person is a victim of human trafficking, a certified copy of those court records should be admissible to establish the fact of the finding, irrespective of the language of Section 236.23. However, a police report documenting the identification of the defendant as a human trafficking victim pursuant to Penal Code Section 236.2 is hearsay as to whether the victim was a human trafficking victim. 
and absent subdivision C would likely be inadmissible since the report would have problems qualifying as an official or business record. Indeed, Section 236.2 does not even necessarily require a police report be made. It simply says law enforcement agencies shall use due diligence to identify all victims of human trafficking and then list the factors that a peace officer must consider in determining whether someone is a victim of human trafficking. So what other kind of documents uh, is this section likely referring to? So such records or documents could include a USCIS I-918 Supplement B form, um, and there's also a form, uh, and that's for U visa and T visa certifications. Mm -hmm. It could be a U or T visa approval notice from USCIS on the basis that the person is a trafficking victim. Potentially a certified court docket showing an evidence code section 1161 motion was granted as to the victim. A certified court docket showing a penal code section 236.1 conviction for a defendant or defendants where the person was named a victim in that offense. It could also be a USCIS approval notice for continued presence in the United States on the basis that the person is a trafficking victim or a certification letter from the Department of Health and Human Services that allows a trafficking victim to receive public benefits and services. As you can see, these documents cover a broad spectrum. Well, some of these documents would be straight up hearsay if offered to prove the defendant was in fact a human trafficking victim. So is section 236.23c in effect creating a new form of hearsay exception that only exists when the defendant is raising the defense of being a victim of human trafficking? Yeah, you could view it that way, Jeff. If the defendant succeeds in establishing this affirmative defense, is the defendant entitled to any further relief other than a dismissal of the charges? So subdivision E of section 236.23 lists various forms of relief that a defendant is entitled to receive, such as sealing of the records, including any record of arrest or detention, release from penalties and disabilities resulting from the charge, an alteration of reality so that all actions and proceedings by law enforcement personnel, courts, or other government or employees that led to the charge are deemed not to have occurred, a prohibition on the person being denied rights or benefits, including denial of employment, housing, financial aid, welfare, or a loan, or other financial accommodation based on the arrest or charge, or based on the failure or refusal to disclose the existence of the arrest or charge, the ability to say in all circumstances that she's never been arrested for or charged with the crime that is the subject of the charge or conviction. And that's including when uh, that person's responding to questions on employment, housing, financial aid, or loan applications. And to make that statement without fear or thereafter being charged or convicted of perjury or otherwise giving a false statement. A different subdivision of section 236.23 provides similar relief to persons who successfully raised the defense in juvenile court. Can a defendant who has successfully raised the defense later be impeached with the underlying conduct? Um, although the statute pretty clearly would allow the defendant to deny having been arrested or convicted of the charged offense to which the defense applied, whether a defendant testifying in a subsequent trial could be asked if she engaged in the criminal conduct uh, is a different and open issue. Setting aside the question of whether the prosecution could overcome an evidence code section 352 objection, if a court did allow the defendant to be impeached with a criminal conduct, the defendant would, at minimum, 
be able to introduce evidence that she successfully raised the defense to the charges by analogy to cases which hold a defendant is entitled to introduce evidence of acquittal when prior bad acts are being introduced under 11, uh, evidence code section 1101B. Let's say law enforcement wants to conduct an investigation into the person who trafficked the defendant who raised the defense. Are they, law enforcement, precluded from looking at any of the reports or records that have been sealed? Um, no, they're not. Uh, there is a subdivision of Section 236.23 that allows law enforcement to access, inspect, or utilize sealed records for subsequent investigatory purposes involving persons other than the defendant. Okay, we've spent a lot of time on AB 1761, the bill that created this new defense, but we still need to spend some more time on that bill because AB 1761 also created a new evidence code section that relates to expert testimony in human trafficking cases. What is that all about, Paula? So AB 1761 enacted Evidence Code Section 1107.5, which allows for the admissibility of expert testimony regarding the effects of human trafficking on human trafficking victims. In an analogous fashion to how Evidence Code Section 1107 allows for the admissibility of expert testimony on intimate partner battering. Specifically, Evidence Code Section 1107.5 provides for the admissibility of expert testimony regarding the effects of human trafficking on human trafficking victims, including the nature and effect of physical, emotional, or mental abuse on the beliefs, perceptions, or behavior of human trafficking victims. Both the defense and prosecution may proffer this type of evidence. Is there any limitation on the admissibility of this kind of expert testimony? Yes. So the statute requires that evidence be relevant and that the expert have the proper qualifications, but if both those foundational elements are met, the statute specifically says that is sufficient foundation for its admissibility. Paula, was there any pre-existing statute that precluded this kind of expert testimony? And if not, since the new section expressly acknowledges that the testimony must be relevant, was this new statute really necessary? So, um, no, this type of expert testimony was not previously precluded, and the statute says the expert testimony uh, must be relevant. However, the existence of this new statute does make it more likely that such testimony will be deemed relevant by the court and will be admitted over a 352 objection. The statute says that the term human trafficking victim is defined in Section 236.1 of the Penal Code. But Section 236.1 does not actually define the term human trafficking. True. In this regard, Jeff, it is poorly drafted, but the obvious intent was to utilize the definitions of the crimes prohibited in Section 236.1 to define what constitutes human trafficking. So in what circumstances should we expect to see this type of expert testimony being used? Um, it's likely that Section 1107.5 will be used in several circumstances. For instance, the defendant might seek expert testimony to explain why she was coerced to commit the charged offense and or how the crime was a direct result of the human trafficking. Um, and maybe to show that her fear or harm was reasonable as required to prevail on the defense created by Penal Code Section 236.23 subsection A. I can also see a prosecutor using an expert to explain why a victim of human trafficking continued to work for a pimp or employer even though no overt force was used to keep the victim working. 
Experts could also be used in 1161 hearings to prove up that a person is, in fact, a trafficking victim, whether that is so the person is not prosecuted for a prostitution-related offense, or so that a trafficking victim is not attacked or impeached uh, with her sexual history or prior commercial sex acts at trial. Section 1107.5 might also be put to use by the defense in a co-defendant human trafficking case to mitigate a bottom girl's culpability, essentially showing that while she had a hand in exploiting other victims, she was also a victim herself. In addition, it might be used to demystify myths about human trafficking and prostitution, as well as to explain pimp culture, the trauma bond between pimp and prostitute, and the meaning of slang found in prostitution ads, social media, and text messages. This is also the jury better understands the context of the conduct being described in court. Paula, you know, earlier in the podcast, we were describing the elements of the new affirmative defense created for victims of human trafficking. One of the elements of that affirmative defense is that the defendant show the act was done out of a reasonable fear of harm. Do you think expert testimony on human trafficking authorized under section 1107.5 will be admissible to establish the defendant had a reasonable fear of harm? In all likelihood, the answer is yes. Section 1107.5 was meant to allow expert testimony that is analogous to the type of expert testimony on intimate partner battering and its effects allowed under Evidence Code Section 1107. In 1996, the California Supreme Court held that expert testimony on battered women's syndrome under Section 1107 was generally relevant to the reasonableness as well as the subjective existence of the defendant's belief in the need to defend, and to the extent it is relevant, the jury may consider it in deciding both questions. So Jeff, a pretty good argument can be made that for similar reasons, expert testimony on human trafficking would be relevant to whether a defendant had the requisite reasonable fear of harm. Okay. Well, that takes care of the new code sections enacted by AB 1761. But there was another bill passed this year that seems to be an after-the-fact version of the new affirmative defense created by Section 236.23. How does this new law work? SB 823 enacted a new statute, Penal Code Section 236.14, and that allows a victim of human trafficking who was previously been arrested for or convicted of any nonviolent offense as a result, as a direct result of being a victim of human trafficking, to petition to have the records relating to the arrest or conviction sealed and to have the conviction vacated. In effect, it applies the new affirmative defense created by Penal Code Section 236.23 retroactively and in an ex post facto manner. But Section 236.14 is even more expansive than 236.23 since, unlike 236.23, it applies to persons convicted of serious felonies and does not require a showing of either coercion nor that the defendant acted out of a reasonable fear of harm. Wow. So what exactly does a defendant have to show in order to get his or her petition to have the conviction vacated granted? So the petition uh, must be made and heard within a reasonable time after the person has ceased to be a trafficking victim or within a reasonable time after the petitioner has sought services for being a trafficking victim, whichever occurs later. Subject to reasonable concerns for the safety of the petitioner, family members of the petitioner, or other victims of human trafficking who may be jeopardized by the bringing of the application or for other reasons consistent with the purposes of that section. 
Okay, well, that tells us when it has to be brought, although that's not a very specific time frame. What does a defendant have to establish, uh, essentially, to have the conviction vacated? So the defendant must establish by clear and convincing evidence that the arrest or conviction was the direct result of being a victim of human trafficking. Uh, If we, as the prosecuting agency, do not file an opposition on time, the court shall deem the petition unopposed and may grant the petition without a hearing based on the defendant's declaration alone. Well, in light of that, we do get notice of the petitions, right? Yes, we do. And we get 45 days from the date of receipt of service to respond to the petition for relief. If we oppose it or if the court otherwise deems it necessary, the court is supposed to schedule a hearing on the petition. And, and what's going to happen at that hearing? Uh, the court considers testimony and documentary evidence in support of the petition and any opposition evidence presented by us as the prosecuting agency. Does the language of the statute indicate whether hearsay would be admissible at this uh, you know, post-conviction hearing to vacate? Arguably, the admission of some hearsay is authorized. Uh, If we look at subdivision M of section 236.14, it allows for the introduction of official documentation to prove a person's status as a human trafficking victim at the time of the offense. For purposes of this subdivision, the term official documentation means any documentation issued by a federal, state, or local agency that tends to show the petitioner's status as a victim of human trafficking. So it sounds kind of like the same type of documentation that could be used to support the affirmative defense created by Section 236.23, the one we discussed earlier. Although that section specifically provides the records must be certified, while this section does not. Does a defendant have to provide this kind of official documentation to obtain relief? Uh, No, actually the statute specifically says official documentation shall not be required for the issuance of an order vacating the conviction and expunging the arrests. Okay, well, it appears that this uh, section 236.14 has a lot of similarities to section 236.23, but there are also some important differences. As I kind of indicated before, it appears that 236.14 has no express requirement of, of coercion. Uh, True, though it may be difficult uh, to show the commission of the crime was a direct result of being a victim of human trafficking without having to show some coercion was involved. Well, true that. It also requires something the pre-conviction affirmative defense created by Section 236.23 does not require. That the victim be engaged in a good faith effort to distance herself from the human trafficking scheme and that the vacating of the conviction is in the best interest of justice and in uh, the petitioning defendant. Yeah, the, the former requirement is somewhat unique, and what a sort of showing will have to be made to show the defendant has attempted to distance themselves from the scheme is going to be interesting. Um, can we ask the defendant, for example, if she would be willing to testify against the human trafficker? The latter requirement seems a little pro forma since the granting of the petition is within the discretion of the judge, and presumably the judge wouldn't exercise his or her discretion to vacate the conviction unless it was in the best interest of justice in the petitioner to do so. Not sure how asking the victim if she would testify against the trafficker at the hearing would play out, especially considering that the statute seems to indicate that a defendant can wait to file the petition until there are no longer concerns about the safety of the defendant or other victims of human trafficking being jeopardized by the bringing of the application. But it's an interesting thought. Are there any other unique aspects to uh, to the hearing? 
Uh, yeah, so the defendant or his or her attorney may be excused from appearing in person at a hearing for relief pursuant to the section, but only if the court finds a compelling reason why the defendant cannot attend the hearing, in which case the defendant may appear telephonically via video conference or by other electronic means established by the court. Now, what happens if the court decides to vacate the conviction? The statute defines vacate to mean that the arrest and any adjudications or convictions suffered by the petitioner are deemed to not have occurred, and that all records in the case are sealed and destroyed pursuant to this section. So all that would be required. Moreover, the court must make a finding that the defendant was a victim of human trafficking when he or she committed the offense, and the guilty verdict is set aside and the court dismisses the accusation or information made against the defendant. The DOJ then is notified of all the above. The court can also order that all arrest records be sealed and destroyed, though it's not entirely clear when the destruction must occur, either three years from the date of the arrest or within one year of the court order uh, sealing the records. The court must take a couple of additional steps, such as giving the defendant a copy of the order and advising him of um, additional forms of relief, like having the ability to lawfully deny or acknowledge the arrest or conviction and preventing arrest or conviction records from being distributed to any state licensing board. Would vacating the conviction allow the defendant to possess firearms? Uh, likely it would. There is nothing in the statute that states that vacating of the conviction doesn't allow the person to possess firearms, uh, like there exists in some other statutes that grant relief. Um, and the definition of vacate means the conviction is deemed to not have occurred. Okay. What if uh, restitution has not been paid on the original conviction? The statute addresses that. Uh, it states a petitioner shall not be relieved of any financial restitution order that directly benefits the victim of a nonviolent crime unless it has already been paid. If a defendant brings this type of motion while uh, he or she is still on probation, you know, it might be a good idea for the prosecutors to argue that it's not in the interest of justice to vacate the conviction just yet because there would be no way to enforce a willful refusal to pay restitution once the conviction was, was vacated. In any event, is a person who was arrested and prosecuted as a juvenile entitled to also petition for relief? Uh, yes, although unlike when it comes to persons who were convicted as adults, when someone was arrested or adjudicated as a juvenile, they are entitled to a rebuttable presumption that the requirements for relief have been met. How many times can a defendant or juvenile uh, petition to have their uh, conviction or adjudication vacated under this new law? Uh, there is no limit. Um, if the motion to vacate is denied, it may be done without prejudice. Also, the court may put on the record what are the curable deficiencies in the application and allow the defendant a reasonable period of time to cure those deficiencies. If the motion to vacate is granted, the records of the motion itself have to be sealed. But what if the motion to vacate is denied? Does the record of the hearing remain public? Presumably, yes, but the statute provides that any record of a proceeding related to a petition pursuant to the section that is accessible by the public shall not disclose the defendant's full name. Okay, another law impacting human trafficking prosecution actually has more to do with human trafficking investigation and involves expanding an existing exception to the law, generally prohibiting people from secretly recording conversations without the knowledge of the other party. 
Paula, how does this new law work? Uh, Jeff, as you indicated, while there is a general prohibition against recording confidential communications without the knowledge of all parties to the communication, Penal Code Section 633.5 provides an exception to that general rule when one party to a confidential communication does so for the purpose of obtaining evidence reasonably believed to relate to the commission by another party to the communication of various listed crimes, including any felony involving violence against the person. The new law adds human trafficking to the list of crimes. Although due to an obvious drafting error, the statute states human trafficking as defined in section 231.6 instead of 236.1. All right. Because section 633.5 allows surreptitious recording of any felony involving violence against the person, wouldn't recording communications for the purpose of obtaining evidence relating to the commission of human trafficking have already been included under this exception? Arguably, yes, and in fact, the way the language is currently phrased, it specifically says that the recording can be done to obtain evidence reasonably believed to relate to the commission by another party to the communication of the crime of any felony involving violence against the person, including, but not limited to, human trafficking. In other words, Jeff, the legislature itself considered human trafficking to be a crime of violence. This change just made it express. All right. AB 6254, a different human trafficking-related bill, made some changes that both enhanced the privacy pr protections for human trafficking victims and gave a court the authority to prioritize human trafficking cases. Paula, could you fill us in on this change with a little more detail? Sure. Uh, the California Public Records Act generally makes all public records, including information that might be contained in police reports, accessible to the public upon request. However, the Public Records Act is subject to various exceptions that prevent disclosure of information unless it is shown that the public's interest in disclosure outweighs the public's interest in non-disclosure. Uh, one of the exceptions to the rule of disclosure is found in Government Code Section 6254F and allows the name of a victim of various sex crimes, including the crime of human trafficking, to be withheld at the victim's request and allows the address of such a victim to remain confidential. AB 2498, a different human trafficking-related bill, made some changes that both enhanced the privacy protections for human trafficking victims and gave a court the authority to prioritize human trafficking cases. Paula, could you fill us in on, on this new law with a little more detail? Sure. The California Public Records Act generally makes all public records, including information that might be contained in police reports, accessible to the public upon request. However, the Public Records Act is subject to various exceptions that prevent disclosure of information, unless it is shown that the public's interest in disclosure outweighs the public's interest in non-disclosure. Now, one of the exceptions to the rule of disclosure is found in Government Code Section 6254, Subdivision F and allows the name of a victim of various sex crimes, including the crime of human trafficking, to be withheld at the victim's request and allows the address of such a victim to remain confidential. AB 2498 amended Section 6254F to provide even greater privacy protections for victims of human trafficking than for sexual assault victims in general. A new subparagraph of Subdivision F now allows the names and images of a trafficking victim to be withheld at the victim's request 
until the investigation or any subsequent prosecution is complete. Moreover, Jeff, it allows for the withholding of the names of the victim's immediate family at the victim's request. Who would be included in the victim's immediate family? Uh, it, it would include any spouse, domestic partner, parent, child, any person related by consanguinity or affinity within the second degree, or any other person who regularly resides in the household or who, within the prior six months, regularly resided in the household. Changes were also made to Penal Code Section 293, which prohibits a law enforcement agency from disclosing to anybody but prosecutors and other certain government agencies the names, addresses, or images of a victim of human trafficking or the victim's immediate family. Uh, the amendment to that section also requires the law enforcement agency to orally inform the victim of the right to have the name, address, images, and the names, addresses, images of his or her immediate family members withheld and kept confidential pursuant to Penal Code Section 293 and Government Code 6254. I see. Could you tell us about the other kind of change made by this bill? relating to when human trafficking cases can receive priority in court over other cases. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Penal Code Section 1048 lays out the general rules on how issues on the calendar shall be disposed of. So for instance, felony prosecutions of persons in custody must be disposed of first, followed by misdemeanor prosecutions of persons in custody, then out-of-custody felonies, and out-of-custody misdemeanors. So the general priority list can be trumped, though, by certain kinds of cases, such as cases involving minors detained as witnesses, or cases involving elder witnesses, or certain violent sexual assault cases that must be given precedence over all other criminal actions in the order of trial, unless good cause is shown for not giving such cases preference. So AB 2498 enacted a new penal code statute, Penal Code Section 1048.2, and that gives a court discretion to grant priority for good cause shown to an action for an alleged violation of Section 236.1 when the court determines giving priority to the human trafficking case to be appropriate. And it appears, Jeff, that a court can do this even over other sexual assault cases or other kinds of crimes that would normally get priority under Section 1048. It's pretty clear that the legislature wants human trafficking victims to be given the same kind of consideration normally afforded to victims of sexual assault. That's not only reflected in the laws we've been discussing, but in another new law allowing young human trafficking victims to testify via closed circuit television. Paula, what does the new law say? The new law you're referring to is a newly created penal code section, section 1347.1. Parallels an existing penal code section found at 1347 that allows a court to order the testimony of a minor, 13 years or younger, at the time of the motion, uh, to testify in another place and out of the presence of the judge, jury, defendant, and attorneys via closed circuit television. Um, if the minor, and this applies if the minor is testifying about an alleged sexual offense committed on the minor, or about a violent felony, or about a felony child endangerment committed on the minor. Section 1347 then lists factors, one or more of which must be shown by clear and convincing evidence to be substantial as to make the minor unavailable as a witness unless closed-circuit testimony is used. Aside from the minor being a victim of human trafficking, which at least arguably in some cases of human trafficking would have qualified as a sexual offense committed on the minor, even under Section 1347, 
Are there any differences between 1347.1 involving human trafficking victims and 1347, the already existing statute? Yeah, there are. Under 1347, the minor must be 13 years or younger. Under 1347.1, the minor testifying about human trafficking must be 15 years or younger. Otherwise, the factors, one or more of which must be shown, are the same. The factors include, but aren't limited to, the vulnerability of the victim, the seriousness of the alleged offense, and any threats to the child or child's family. Both Section 1347 and 1347.1 uh, are long statutes that lay out various procedures that must be followed and when one-way versus two-way closed-circuit television may be used. The two statutes are identical in this regard as well. Would Section 1347.1 be available for use when the minor is a victim of human trafficking based on being forced to perform labor or services that do not involve commercial sex acts? Yes, absolutely. Section 1347.1 applies when the defendant is charged with any violation of Penal Code Section 236.1 which prohibits both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Paula, I understand that one of the new laws that went into effect this January may make it easier for human trafficking victims to obtain T visas. Could you tell us a little bit about that new law? Well, Jeff, let me first let our listeners know what a T visa is. Under federal law, uh, victims of human trafficking may receive some protection against deportation. The mechanism by which the victim is permitted to legally stay in the United States is called a T-Visa. An individual may apply for T-Visa status if he or she is or has been a victim of a severe form of trafficking in persons. To apply for the T-Visa, the individual must provide evidence demonstrating uh, his or her status as a trafficking victim, be physically present in the United States on account of being a trafficking victim, mm -hmm. uh, and that he or she complied with any reasonable request for assistance in the investigation or prosecution of the trafficking case, uh, or has not attained 15 years of age, and would suffer extreme hardship involving unusual and severe harm if he or she were removed from the United States. Existing federal law provides a form for human trafficking victims to request temporary immigration benefits, and it also provides a form for a person to certify that a uh, person requesting a T visa is in fact a human trafficking victim. The person doing the certifying can provide what is called a declaration of cooperation. The new state law that was enacted is Penal Code Section 679.11, and it requires prosecutors, police, judges, or other state or local government agencies that have criminal, civil, or administrative, investigative, or prosecutorial authority relating to human trafficking to certify upon the request of the human trafficking victim or that victim's family um, that the victim cooperated on a designated federal form when the victim is a victim of human trafficking and has been cooperative or is likely to be cooperative in a human trafficking prosecution or investigation. So what do we do, uh, sorry, <laughs> what do we or the other certifying agencies have to include on the form? We're required to include specific details about the nature of the crime investigated or prosecuted and also a detailed description of the victim's cooperation or likely cooperation to the detection, investigation, or prosecution of the criminal activity. Is the term human trafficking for purposes of this law determined by reference to Penal Code Section 236.1, our state human trafficking law? Not 
specifically, but the language of what constitutes human trafficking is likely to be interpreted to cover any form of human trafficking prohibited by Penal Code Section 236.1. And what does it mean for the human trafficking victim to be deemed cooperative? Well, we looked at subdivision F of Section 679.11, which says that there is a rebuttable presumption that a victim is cooperative has been cooperative or is likely to be cooperative in the investigation or prosecution of human trafficking if the victim has not refused or failed to provide information and assistance reasonably requested by law enforcement. How long do we have to get this form out? Um, well, the statute says the certifying entity shall process the form, called a Form I-914 Supplement B Declaration, within 90 days of the request unless the non-citizen is in removal proceedings, in which case the declaration shall be processed within 14 days of the request. Is a current investigation, the filing of charges, or a prosecution or conviction required for the victim to request and obtain this kind of declaration from a certifying official? Nope, none of those are required. So what happens if the form is filled out, but then the victim later changes her mind about cooperating and doesn't cooperate? In that circumstance, a certifying official may withdraw the certification if the victim refuses to provide information and assistance when reasonably requested to do so. Section 679.11 sounds pretty similar to Penal Code Section 679.10, which provides for non-citizen victims of specified serious or violent felonies to obtain a declaration of cooperation that is required for a U visa. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the procedures and language used in 679.10 are very similar to the procedures and language used in 679.11. And in fact, there are a lot of trafficking victims that also apply for U visas in addition to T visas. Um, so reference to cases interpreting that statute can provide guidance on issues arising in interpreting section 679.11. However, Section 679.10 was only enacted a year ago, so there are no cases <laughs> interpreting that statute either. Either. All right, Paula, one law left, and it addresses an issue created back in 2012 when the voters passed Prop 35, the Californians Against Sexual Exploitation Act, sometimes referred to as the CASE Act. Prop 35 was largely addressed to to human trafficking and enacted all sorts of laws relating to human trafficking. One of the things it did was amended sex registration statutes to require all registered sex offenders to provide a list of internet identifiers and internet service providers used. However, this requirement was challenged in federal court. And in the case of Doe versus Harris, the Ninth Circuit upheld the federal district court's injunction against these uh, internet provisions of uh, the CASE Act, finding that they implicated the First Amendment and unnecessarily chilled protected speech in several different ways. First, it didn't make clear what sex offenders are required to report. Second, it found there were insufficient safeguards preventing the public release of the information sex offenders report. And third, it found that requiring a new internet identifier to be reported within 24 hours was improper because it was onerous and also was overbroad because it applied to all sex offenders. What does the new law do? The new law makes a number of changes to existing laws related to sex offenders supplying their internet identifiers to law enforcement, 
in order to conform them to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in Doe v. Harris. Such as? Well, Penal Code Section 290.024 is amended to require offenders convicted of a felony on or after January 1st, 2017 to register internet identifiers if a court at sentencing finds that one of the following applies. One, that the defendant used the internet to collect any private information to identify the victim of crime. Two, the defendant was convicted of human trafficking pursuant to section 236.1 subdivision B, which is the sex trafficking subdivision, or section 236.1 subdivision C, uh, which covers sex trafficking involving minors, and used the internet to traffic the victim. Or three, the defendant was convicted of a felony involving obscene manner, um, and that covers penal code sections 311 through 311.12 and use the internet to prepare, publish, distribute, send, exchange, or download the obscene matter or matter depicting a minor engaging in sexual conduct. Now, the definition of the term internet identifier in that section was amended uh, to read, any electronic mail address or username used for instant messaging or social networking that is actually used for direct communication between users on the internet in a manner that makes the communication not accessible to the general public. It also makes clear that an internet identifier does not include passwords, date of births, social security numbers, or PIN numbers. Now, Penal Code Section 290.014 was amended to require that any change of internet identifiers be reported to law enforcement now within 30 working days instead of within 24 hours. And Penal Code Section 290.015 was amended so that a sex offender is only required to provide a list of all internet identifiers actually used instead of internet identifiers established and used. All right. Any other statute amended? Uh, yeah. The bill amended Section 290.45, which authorizes law enforcement to disclose information about sex offenders to the public when necessary to ensure public safety and to prohibit the disclosure of an offender's internet identifiers to a non-law enforcement entity or person except by court order. Um, it permits a law enforcement agency to use an inter internet identifier submitted with a sex offender's registration or to release it to another law enforcement agency, but that's only for the purpose of investigating a sex-related crime, a, a kidnapping, or human trafficking. Um, it also amended Penal Code Section 290.018 to add a new misdemeanor crime. Oh, what's that new crime? Um, subdivision I now makes it a misdemeanor for someone who is required to register as a sex offender and provide internet identifiers to fail to provide his or her internet identifiers. Any other provisions amended? Uh, yes, although one amendment was unrelated to internet identifiers. Penal Code Section 290.015, subsection C, subsection 2, was amended to add post-release community supervision, um, more familiarly known as PRCS, okay. and mandatory supervision uh, to those forms of supervision, uh, parole and probation, that govern which, govern which district attorney may prosecute an offender for failure to register. Now, if a person fails to register, the district attorney in the county where the offender was to be on PRCS, mandatory supervision, parole, or probation may prosecute for failure to register. 
All right, Paula, that pretty much sums up, I think, uh, all of the new human trafficking laws. So thanks very much for joining me, and hopefully we'll uh, see you again on a future IPG. Thank you, Jeff.